This morning's scripture reading is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 12a. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water, and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see all of you. Um, my kids were amazing. And I have to say, I mean, sometimes in those in those um, those settings, the the girls can like overshadow the guys, but they came through pretty strong. So <laughs> they're not here, but I was going to shout out to the boys, but they all did so amazing. I wanted to say just one uh, a few things about next week's service. So it'll be a different service. It'll be lessons and carols. We'll be tracing the story of Christ's coming, uh, and even to His second coming, as we read. Uh, scripture readings together interspersed with music. And the music will also be something new and special for us. We'll be having a, um, man, I always get the, the wording wrong, but it's a quintet. Um, so we'll have instruments that will be leading us, that will be new to us. And just think about this, mark this down. They'll be playing a little bit early. Uh, so we'll have a longer time of reflection leading up to the worship service. So come at 9.45 for that. And we'll also have some extra parking available so we make sure there's room for all guests and family that will be coming and joining for that time. So you'll, you'll be hearing all that again through an e-news, but just want to put that in everybody's mind. This Advent, we are looking at the letter of 2 Peter. This little letter is the Apostle Peter's farewell address to the church. And in chapter 1... 
He says, somehow, we don't really know how, Jesus has made it clear to him that his time on earth is coming to an end, so his ministry is coming to an end, and he decides to write this little letter that we call Second Peter to the church as his farewell message. When you have a chance to communicate to people you care about, if you look at the passage, he, he calls uh, the recipients of this letter his dear friends. He says it repeatedly, my dear friends, I care about you. He's communicating to them. He's communicating about a cause that he's, he's given everything to, the church of Jesus Christ. If you have a chance, one final chance to say what's on your heart and mind, you don't waste time on things that don't matter, right? You focus on what is most important, and that's what we have here in Second Peter. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Peter says, here's what I'm doing in this letter to you. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder so that you would recall something that you've been taught. To make sure, he says, you have a sincere understanding of it. Uh, You might know it, but you forget it, and I need to stir it up. Stir it up, that's, that's an image there that's helpful. It's like when something settles to the bottom of a cup you know, you're drinking and you need, you need to stir it up. And Peter is saying, there's something that can kind of sink to the bottom. Something that's a part of Christian teaching that we can forget, we can lose sight of. It, it gets vague or fuzzy and we need to stir it back up. We need to be reminded so we recall it. And what is it that Peter needs to stir up? We see here, and we've seen the previous two weeks, it's our understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been stirring up. That's the main focus of this letter and the final section of the letter that we just read most of. And this has also been our focus as a church this Advent. The second coming, or the second Advent of Jesus. Advent is a time, as we've been saying, to look back at the first coming of Jesus in incarnation as one of us, and also to look ahead at something maybe we don't think about as much, maybe we are not quite sure what to make of it. Maybe we're a little embarrassed about it. But his second coming in coronation as victorious Lord, Peter says it matters that we believe that. And he's saying it matters so much it's the focus of my final and farewell message to the church. Why would it be Peter's final message to Christians that they be stirred up to be reminded and recall, Jesus really is coming again. Peter tells us why. Look at verse 3. <laughs> he says, essentially, I know it's going to be really hard to continue to believe this, to continue to hope in this and wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ and to see its relevance as life goes on, as days pass by and add up. To us, it seems like He's taking so long that we can forget about it, doubt it, and let it kind of sink to the bottom. Peter addresses all these thoughts here. He really voices them as he speaks to them in verse 4. You look at the question, where is his coming that he promised? Why is it taking so long? If Jesus is coming again to right all wrongs, wipe away all tears, heal all wounds as we prayed, and to hold everybody accountable, to bring 
justice once and for all and a new heaven and a new earth, why hasn't he already done it? What is he waiting for? Peter answers that question in three ways. We're going to look at each of these in this text. First, he says, be aware of why we are in a hurry. Then understand why God isn't in a hurry. And then when we understand it, he shows us what practical difference it makes, which is a lot. First, why we are in a hurry. Second, why God isn't in a hurry. And thirdly, what difference will it make when we really believe that? So first, why are we in a hurry? Look at verse 3 with me. Peter says, above all. And we can't just skim by that phrase. That's, that's quite a phrase. Above all, he says, be aware of this. That's strong language. Peter saying, above all, put this on the top of the list. To retain a clear understanding of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. Above all, he says, scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffing and following their own evil desires saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. When Peter says last days, this is the way the New Testament describes the time in between the first and second coming of Jesus. These are the last days. Once Jesus comes, we are entering in to the new age. So this applies to them in the same way that it applies to us. We live in that in-between time. And Peter says, when you live in this in-between time, be aware of this kind of thinking. That maybe it goes on in our own minds. If there really is such a thing as the second coming, a day of judgment, then, as I've already said, (laughs) why is it taking so long? If it was up to me, if I was Jesus, I would have already come. If you were Jesus, would you have already come? Peter says, if you skip down to verse 9, the Lord does not delay. There are other translations here that are helpful to bring out the fullness of this word, delay. It could also be translated late. The Lord is not late. The Lord is not slow. As some understand, delay and lateness and slowness. So in other words, Peter is saying here, we are in a hurry in a way that God is not. And so, above all, ask yourself, be self-aware about this question. Why? If God isn't in a hurry, why am I? This applied to Peter's first readers way back in the first century. They needed to hear it in a day before the internet. You know, an instant answers to all our questions on Google. Before Amazon Prime, they had to wait on their crops to grow before they ate them. They didn't have the grocery store. And they wrote letters to communicate. How much more do we need to ask ourselves, why are we always in a hurry? Even when we don't know why we are. Is anybody, is anybody in a hurry and they don't even realize why they're in a hurry? It just feels like I should be hurrying. Why? why? We scroll through our phones in a hurry. 
You know, it, it's their way. We just scroll so fast. Like, we already have this device that's designed to like, do everything for us, and we just have to hurry through it. We drive in a hurry. I even tried writing this sermon on hurry, not hurrying, in a hurry. And while I was doing it at our office this week, they were jackhammering the concrete. <laughs> and it was making this, they were jackhammering, it was causing basically an earthquake, and it was making this sound, this sound like the sound at a dentist office when they take out that little screeching metal tool. But it was like 20 times louder than that. And I said, okay, Lord, <laughs> I think you're teaching me something here. We're always in a hurry. And we get so frustrated when things take longer than we want them to. Why? One main reason, we hate to wait. That's how I would summarize it. Peter is preparing us here because his final parting word here at the very end of the letter, his final command, his final advice in the final message to the church is, what do you have to say to us? What are you going to leave uh, with us? It's like a sideline reporter at a football game. It's like, hey, you know, they, they, he's about to leave. The season's ending or whatever. What do you want to leave a message to the fans and your players? What are you going to leave as a message to the church? Wait. Wait, we don't like that word. Peter, Peter wait, are you, are you sure? Are you sure it's not act? <laughs> are you sure it's not make a plan now that I'm going? Take up my job that I've been doing for the church. Are you sure it's not pray harder, set goals, make a vision, achieve our dreams, reach the world, change the world? No. Wait. Why do we hate waiting so much? I think it could be summarized like this. Waiting feels like we are doing nothing and God is doing nothing. We can't imagine anything good that is happening while we wait. And we can't think of any reason in our minds as to why waiting would be a good idea. Let's just get on with it. The scoffers say here, you know what, we're done waiting. The good things we want in life, we want them now. So forget waiting on any good things until the coming of Jesus. Look at verse 3. Instead, they, Peter says, they're following their own evil desires. Um, the word here for desires, often translated evil desires, can be translated just desire. It's over-desire. And Peter's saying, these, these folks who are like, we're done waiting. We're just going to follow our desires and get what we want now. It's very blunt the way he says it, but we get it. We want good things now. All of us. <laughs> when God says wait, it feels to us like he's saying no. Or like he's saying never. And that's very hard. Then there are the hard things that we want to end and avoid. There's the good things we want to have and the hard things we want to avoid. Living in a dark place where there's pain and hurt and evil in our world. As it was then, so it is now. That this is one of the main reasons people dismiss Christianity and Jesus. If he is who he says he is, why doesn't he do something about the pain in the world all around us? And why doesn't he do something about the pain and the hurt in my own heart and the anxiety I feel and the issues that I have? 
Now, look at verse four. They were all saying, all things continue. Life just goes on. The cycles of pain and injustice and suffering. There's so much packed up in in this little phrase, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation. Sometimes life feels like that. All things just continue. Is it ever going to get better? Have you ever felt like this? I want to quote something and see if you've ever felt like this. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say, the eyes not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say, really, this is new? Look, it has already existed in the ages before us. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. God knows we will feel like this. He put it in his word, a whole book about it, Ecclesiastes. He knows that the waiting will feel like to us. He's doing nothing. All things are just continuing on. And all this, Peter realizes, that's why he wrote this letter, it can start to sink into and seep into our hearts and our minds, those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus and try to hold on and believe and look for a reason to continue. And maybe that's you today, where you're just saying, I'm tired of waiting. God understands. He says, I know why you are in a hurry. Let me tell you why I am not. Why God isn't in a hurry. Peter tells us very plainly here why he isn't in a hurry like we are in verse 9. He says, God is not delaying. He's not late. He's not slow. He is patient. God isn't in a hurry, Peter says, because he is patient. Then in verse 9, He says, if we don't understand God's patience properly and clearly, we will misinterpret it. He says, misunderstand it. We'll misread it. We will misread his patience as delay. And we'll wonder, God, is something more important than your plan to set all things right? We send text messages to each other all the time, right? Sorry for the delay. Sorry for the delay, and we're so busy. Sometimes we send lots of those messages because we're behind. God, is something more important? Like, how could you delay this? Are you saying sorry for the delay? Or we interpret it as slowness, where God is saying, I'll get to the restoration of all things later. What is more important than this, God? It seems like he's being indifferent or lateness. You know, what could be more urgent on the calendar of God than this? Absence, indifference, negligence. This is what we will feel from God. Unless, Peter says, we understand his patience. That's how important this teaching is. If we don't have it, it'll lead to scoffing or cynicism. 
and that attitude taking a hold in our own hearts. What does it mean that God is patient? Psalm 103, yesterday's SJT reading or Bible reading plan is one of the best descriptions of God's patience in scripture. And so we have a slide with Psalm 103, verses nine through 10. What does it mean that God is patient? If we can flip ahead, there we go. God, it, it means, God's patience means he's, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. What a passage. God knows we are sinful, fragile, broken people who are nothing without him. We are dust. Yet, when we transgress his boundaries, when we sin against him, he does not immediately respond as we deserve and as we choose. He doesn't just say, you want life without me? Here, have it. Instead, he is patient. He's waiting for us to turn to him so that we might have our sins removed and that God might show us just how committed and faithful and relentless his love is for us. This is the patience of God. And probably the best or greatest description of love ever written in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. What is love's first attribute? If you remember, it says love is patient. God's patience is not absence, it's not indifference, it's not negligence, it is love. Do you believe that? Peter says, God is being patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If God was in a hurry like we are, Peter's saying, it would not be to our benefit at all. In fact, if God was not patient, would we even exist? He would have been just to bring the day of judgment after Adam and Eve sinned. He would save himself and even the world a lot of pain and suffering because of sin. Or after the flood didn't change anything, or after delivering Israel from slavery and they said, we want to go back, or after bringing Israel into the land and they said, thank you, but they started serving any other God that they could find, and the story goes on and you get the picture. In Romans 2, verse 4, I don't know if I have this. Do I have this slide, Wilfred? Well, you can turn to Romans chapter 2, but here's what it says. It says, God is patient so that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience would lead us to repentance. He's making the same point that Peter is making here. And he says in Romans 2 verse 5 that our final judgment, he says that the final judgment, it all comes down to our response to God's patience. Either we will have hardened hearts that are impenitent, that are blaming him, 
or soft and repentant hearts that are thanking him and praising him for how patient he has been with me. This is the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. If we want to understand, if we get the gospel, this is how you understand the gospel, how you know you understand it. The more you live, the more you say, there is no one God has been more patient with than me. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And then right after that, he says, God saved me in order that he might demonstrate his extraordinary patience. We get the gospel when our heart is softened to say that. When our heart is not hard toward God in suspicion or anger, for not giving us what we think we deserve from him. Instead, it is softened as we see more and more how God has given us what we don't deserve in Christ. Look at the word translated to come to, come to repentance. It's a significant word here. The word is koreo. It can be translated to make room or to make space. It's from the word korah, which is the space in between two places. Interesting, the space in between. This teaches a profound and important truth about God. God is willing to leave space in between. God is willing to give time for us to reach repentance, to get there. The message translation is great here. It says, he, God, is giving everyone space and time for change. Space and time. God is not in a hurry. He wants more and more people to be born, made in his image, so that he can hammer their hearts with his patience, his forbearance, and his kindness, so that they can be softened. and he can bring them into his eternal kingdom, his new creation, and so that they can enjoy life with him forever. That's why God hasn't ended all things. That's why Jesus hasn't come again. This is what God is doing. It's not empty space and time. It's full of his work of love. And that's why he's not in a hurry. This week in a conversation with my wife, Emilio, and somebody from church, it was hitting us all together. We were talking not about this, but something else, and how clearly we see this in the ministry of Jesus. Think of Jesus. He gave so much space and time to everyone he interacted with. For example, he ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, we're told. Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh, sitting at a meal with tax collectors and prostitutes. Some immediately repented. It seems like most did not. Why didn't Jesus demand right there and then, it's got to happen now? These were serious things. These were traitors. They were uh, acting so unjust, taking money from the people of Israel, giving it to Rome. These were prostitutes engaged in sexual sin and causing themselves trauma. Yet Jesus did not confront and demand everything change all at once. He commanded repentance, yes, and he gave space and time 
for it. Wow. This week I was reading about a building called La Sagrada Familia. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen it. It's a basilica in Spain. I understand that it's one of the most beautiful buildings on earth. Millions of tourists visit inside, like four to five million, and more like 20 million come to see it from the outside every year. And I have a few pictures of it. We could put those up. It has incredible pillars inside, stained glass. That's like one of a kind. There's nothing like it. There it is, La Sagrada Familia. The architect, Antoni Gaudi, he was a Christian. He made it his life's mission to build this and design this so intricately, and he was very, very patient. He filled everything with biblical scenes. Every detail mattered to him. He spent the last 43 years of his life on this. I think there's another one. We can go to the next. There we go, another view. After a while, you can imagine people were impatient. All right, when is it going to be finished? 40 plus years, the thing is taking forever. And he answered once, my client is not in a hurry. (laughs) He started in 1882. It is still under construction. (laughs) Go back to the other one. I was actually not aware that I was still under construction. I kept looking for a good picture, and I'm like, why is there like a crane always here, and there's always something going on? Like, let's get one without that. But there isn't one without it, because it is still being built. (laughs) Gaudi understood the patience of God. My client isn't in a hurry. God is making all creation and every person who trusts in his son, into a basilica, as it were, to the glory of his patient love. We don't understand it now, why it has to continue to be under construction, but he promises one day we will understand, and he will be finished. And because of his slow and patient love, we and all creation will be far more beautiful than we could ever imagine without it. You know, Peter says, in all of our hurrying, don't overlook two things we know about God. If you look first at verse five, he uses the word overlook twice. First, don't overlook the process by which God normally works. We can miss it, we can overlook it. We open up the Bible, everything seems like so sudden, right? We open it up and it's like God acted. There's a miracle, this happened. But what, if, if you just have your Bible and you open it, what's, what's happening most of the time in the pages of the Bible? In between the lines. Waiting, process, slow growth, waiting. By his word, Peter says, God made the world long ago. However long we think it took God to create the world, six days, six billion years, the point is God didn't do it in one day. He didn't do it in one second. He used a process. He did not bring the flood immediately, and now by his word, Peter says, he keeps the whole world as it is 
in existence. God's word, which is how God works, has a normal pattern, and that pattern is process. Development. God values process. Maybe we could even say he takes joy in the process. So don't overlook the process by which he works and don't overlook the pace at which God works. Verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God's timing is not our timing. Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2, is facing a similar time of questioning and wrestling with God about these very same issues. Could you put that slide up? And God gave an answer to the prophet. He said, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. God has his own pace, which is beyond our understanding, is different than our timing. He isn't in a hurry. He knows the exact right time, the appointed time for everything. We don't. God will not lie to us. He will not lie. Though it seems like a delay to us, his promise will certainly come. And finally, when we understand God's patience, when we understand God's word is at work, over time, in process, and he will do all he says he will do at his perfect timing and pace. When we understand just how patient God is and has been and is being with us, when we know the day will come, when we clearly understand this, a sincere understanding of this, I think what Peter is saying here is it can cure us of our hurry, of our impatience which is so rooted in our need for, in our addiction to be in control of ourselves, of others, and our future, which is the root of our anxiety, our rushing, our multitasking, our hurry. Whatever I'm looking for, whatever I need, whatever I want out of life, it's not here, it's over there in the future. So I'm rushing to it. I'm always in a hurry. Peter says, Here's what you do as you wait. You see, look at at the end there in verse 12. As you wait. As you wait. What should we be doing? He says it's not nothing. It's not just sitting back and being passive. It's not putting everything on pause. It's not like a waiting room at the doctor where you're just sitting there and you're just like reading old magazines. There's nothing to do. Peter says it's not like that. He says it's clear now. Look at verse 11. It's clear now what? What sort of people you should be. Wilfred, can you move to the next slide after? This is what Peter's saying, and I just want to kind of close with some practical thoughts about this. When we aren't in a hurry, we are freed from anxiety and fear about the future to focus on what sort of person we're becoming in the present. This is what we're to do. We're to ask, what sort of person am I becoming? If I'm freed, God has the future. He will right all wrongs. He will heal all wounds. All my desires, I can't even imagine how he will meet all my longings and desires. 
in the, new, in the new creation, when we are free by that knowledge, we can ask that question. What sort of person am I becoming as I wait? Am I becoming patient like Jesus? Three final questions, last slide. So would you please consider these questions? I would ask you to, I would challenge you to, my friends. Am I as patient with myself as God is? If God is okay with process and giving me time and space for growth and change, am I not okay with it? We don't even know all of our sin. How much of your sin do you know? 1%, 2%? Do you know all the areas you need to grow and mature? Even if we know 2% and we're trying our best on that, God knows all of it and he is still being patient with you. So we should be as patient with ourselves as God is. Secondly, am I as patient with others as God is with me? If God is patient with others, allowing time and space for sinners, what about me? Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable about uh, the unforgiving servant. If you remember this parable, this servant owes a lot to his master. He says to the master, will you be patient with me? And the master says, yes. And then he goes to somebody else who owes him money, a much smaller amount. He says, give it to me. And the person says, will you be patient? No, give it to me now. Jesus told that story to say, if you understand the patience of God towards you, you will become like him, patient with other broken, sinful, hurting, needy, sometimes frustrating people. Are we too quick to hammer others with judgment? What's taking so long? Giving no space as people or in the church to process, to have time to repent, time and space? Are we asking others to show up already complete? We should not be asking or looking for people to hammer with immediate judgments. Instead, we should be asking, who do I need to hammer with my patient love? So that's your assignment. Go hammer somebody (laughs) with patient love this week. And lastly, am I patient in waiting on God? Can you slow down? Can you be still and trust that God is at work? What if I told you that right now you have every single thing you need for life? And as Peter says, godliness. This is how he opens this letter. Right now you have everything you need for life and godliness. So maybe we can slow down. We can be patient. We can wait as the Lord makes us more like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is hard to wait. And as I think about my own impatience, again, I'm struck by your incredible patience. And as we have all heard your word, 
comforting us, challenging us. I pray that you would enable us to see the ways you have been so patient with us. How even today you are hammering us with kindness, forbearance, and patience. In whatever ways we are turned away, not trusting, we are hurt, we are disappointed, impatient, Lord, I pray in response to your word and as we come to your table that you would enable us to turn again to you, to wait, to trust, to know that you are at work even when we can't understand it or see it. So fill us up again with encouragement. Fill us up again with the grace that we need. You've given us, you say, everything we need for life and godliness to be patient people in a world that's so full of hurry and impatience. Help us live and move in a different way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.